All right, good morning. Well, if you were here last week, hopefully you remember that I introduced our church's new vision slogan for 2019 and perhaps for beyond. Uh, for the many years now, our vision slogan at St. Paul's has been more people more like Jesus. And um, just to reiterate, our vision slogan is not our mission. Okay? Our, our mission is a fourfold thing that is uh, based on both the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. It's loving God, loving neighbor, sharing Christ, building believers. Loving God, loving neighbor, sharing Christ, building believers. Uh, we believe that that is the mission that all of the church is called to. But for many years now, we've had this way of expressing what, what our vision is, what we hope to see. And it's been this phrase, more people, more like Jesus. And we still want to see more people becoming more like Jesus. Don't think that because we're changing this that we don't really, really want that. But going into 2019, Keith and I thought it would be good for us to have something new to remind us of what we're all about as a church and to focus our, our attention. And I was a little concerned that our old vision might send the wrong impression because it says more people in it, right? Which suggests that if we're not constantly seeing the church grow, that we're failing. And it also suggests that if we're more like Jesus, then that automatically is going to equate to more people coming. It's automatically going to equate to church growth. And the reality is that there are churches out there who aren't very faithful to the message of Jesus, sometimes, that grow like crazy. And, on the other hand, there are churches sometimes that are very faithful to Jesus' teaching, um, but they're relatively small. And so we can't take size alone as an indication of whether we are being like Jesus. And so we thought we should have a, a vision slogan this year and in the future that doesn't imply that. So our vision slogan in 2019 is going to be something a little more fundamental than more people more like Jesus. I announced it last week. It's just three words, truth, grace, life. And as I explained last week, I'm going to be doing a little bit of review because I know the sermon from last week actually didn't get recorded, so it was never online for anyone who wanted to catch up. Um, so if you were here last week and some of this sounds repetitive, just bear with me. We'll get through it pretty quickly. Um, but as I explained last week, the inspiration for this vision comes from John 1.14, which says of Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of what? Full of grace and truth. So Jesus came to earth full of grace and truth, and that means that we as a church community should also be filled with grace and truth. And last week, we talked about what it means when we as a church are filled with truth. And uh, we, we identified six characteristics of being filled with truth. And I'm going to run through these really quick. In case you missed it, to be filled with truth means to be able to see things as they actually are. To be filled with truth means to be able to tell it like it is, even if it's not popular. To be filled with truth means to be able to admit when we're not sure about something. It's not just arrogantly knowing everything or thinking that we know everything. It's being real about sometimes we don't know things. Sometimes we have to be honest about that. To be filled with truth means to be able to be honest about our own failures and shortcomings. To be filled with truth means having a commitment to facts rather than just feelings. 
We live in a culture right now that places an extreme amount of emphasis on feelings for determining what's true. And that leads to a lot of division, a lot of anger and tribalism. So we want to, we want to stay away from that. And to be filled with truth means to look to Jesus' teaching and example as our supreme authority. Jesus said, I am the truth. Not just I know the truth, but I am the truth. And that means that if we want to know what's really true about who God is, about what, what, what's right and wrong, about what really matters, then we have to be in relationship with Jesus. We have to know Jesus. Now, as you can see from this list, being filled with truth is not an easy thing, right? Because we have a natural human tendency to believe whatever we want to believe, regardless of the facts. We have a natural tendency to trust feelings more than facts. And we have a natural tendency to hide or deny our, our failures and our shortcomings. And that's why if we as a church are filled with truth, then it's going to be a powerful testimony to the power of God, because that's a rare thing. It's a very rare thing. And I believe that for some people, if they come into a community that truly is filled with truth, it's going to feel like a refreshing oasis. And my hope and prayer is that we can be that refreshing oasis for people. But truth doesn't always feel like a refreshing oasis. Okay, sometimes truth feels like a stormy sea that is going to engulf you and drown you. Uh, truth can be terrifying. Truth can cut like a knife. And some of us actually spend years developing elaborate defense mechanisms to keep keep ourselves from letting in the truth, because we don't want to deal with it. You know, when we, when we have a strong desire to view the world or ourselves in a particular way, and then truth gets in the way of that, then we can respond to that with denial, or anger, or offense. And that's why just being filled with truth is not enough. Like Jesus, we also need to be filled with this quality of grace. So what is grace? What does it look like to be filled with grace? That's what we're going to be talking about for the rest of this morning. The Greek word that gets translated as grace is this word charis. And if you look it up in a Greek lexicon, one of the definitions is this. Goodwill, loving kindness, and favor. And I think that really hits the nail on the head there. To say that Jesus was full of grace is to say that he was filled with love toward humanity. Uh, he came with a desire to bless, not to curse. A desire to redeem, not to condemn. You know, just, just as the angels announced on the night that he was born, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So, if you're taking notes, the first sign that we're filled with grace is this. It's simple. We desire to bless those within and outside of the church. We desire to bless those within and outside of the church. Now, I could have just said we love those within and outside of the church. But I got more specific because I want to be very clear about what love is. Uh, I think deep down we all know what love really is, but sometimes we have a hard time articulating it. And what love is, is it is an attitude that wills to bless another person. It is a desire to see another person be fully alive, to be joyful, to be at peace. 
And not just in a flimsy, oh, I hope the best for that person kind of way, but a deep longing that motivates us to act for their benefit. The kind of longing that uh, feels joy when they feel joy and feels pain when they're in pain. That's love. And the Bible tells us that if we don't have that attitude, if, if we don't have this, this attitude of love, this will to bless, then we don't have anything. Nothing of value at all. 1 Corinthians 13.2 says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Notice that includes, if, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. In other words, if I could possess all truth but have not grace, I am nothing. You know, last week we talked about the importance of seeing things as they actually are and telling it like it is and being committed to facts rather than feelings. And I stand by all that. But we have to know the reality is we could know everything. We could have the Bible memorized from cover to cover. But if we don't have love, if we don't actually will to bless other people, then we're just know-it-alls. And in God's eyes, we don't have anything, nothing of value. Without grace, truth becomes a weapon. It becomes something that we use to win arguments and feel superior to other people. It becomes a, a tool for humiliating and excluding and condemning. But when we're filled with grace, truth is something that we use to bless, right? We use the truth to free people from sin and evil and, and to bring hope and joy. We tell the truth not to wound, but to heal. But that's easier said than done, isn't it? Because people can be really annoying. <laughs> uh, worse than that, people can be cruel, right? People can be selfish and bigoted and prideful and greedy and all the rest of those seven deadly sins that we talked about in the fall. And that brings us to the second sign of being filled with grace, which is that we're a forgiving people. We are forgiving people. <clears throat> we're told in the Gospel of Matthew that Peter, one of the disciples, came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And Peter suggests, up to seven times. And what you might not realize is that in those days, the rabbis used to talk about, well, how many times should you forgive a person if they wrong you? And they, thought, they taught three times. That's a good cutoff. And so when Jesus, or when Peter comes to Jesus and he says, up to seven times, he probably thinks he's being really generous. You know, he thinks, oh, Jesus talks a lot about forgiveness, so I'll impress him right now up to seven times, and he's probably thinking that Jesus will be like, oh, Peter, I'm so proud of you. you, you really get it, you know, but seven times, let's not get carried away. How about five? You know, five's a good cutoff. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, I tell you, not seven times, 77 times. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we should be keeping a log, and once we get up into the 70s, we warn the person, hey, you're getting close. 
I don't think that's what Jesus meant. If it was what he meant, I'm sure most marriages wouldn't make it past the five-year mark. Um, What Jesus is doing here is he's setting the number high enough that the idea of keeping track is ridiculous. He's saying, Peter, you've got the whole wrong idea. You you shouldn't be keeping track of offenses. You should forgive. Seven times? 77 times. Don't think about that. Now, this is just one example of Jesus' radical teaching on forgiveness. There's many, many more. And, of course, Jesus didn't just command us to be forgiving. He practiced it himself. Uh, Even when he was being crucified, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. I think that moment might be the most profound example of, of Jesus being full of grace that even as he was experiencing incredible pain and injustice and humiliation, he was still hoping that his perpetrators might be truly blessed, that they might be reconciled to God. That's incredible. It's amazing. Now, I have a little bit of a confession, which is that every time I start to uh, prepare to preach on forgiveness, there's a point where I'm tempted just to not do it. And the reason is because I start, I start talking about forgiveness, and I'm like, well, my goodness, if we take this seriously, isn't it going to enable evil people to do horrible things? And then I think, how do I explain this in a way that doesn't overqualify Jesus' teaching? And it's hard. Forgiveness is hard. It's a hard topic. So, for example, say uh, a man has a problem with beating his wife. Well, I don't want to encourage that man to think, oh, Jesus says my wife has to forgive me 70 times, seven times. She shouldn't even keep track. Just forgive me over and over again so I can just keep doing whatever I want. I don't want to enable that. Right? We have to understand that forgiveness doesn't mean enabling someone to repeat a crime over and over and over again. Uh, like, say, moving a priest who has abused children just to one parish after another. That's incredibly irresponsible and harmful. But what forgiveness does mean is this. Forgiveness means letting go of the desire we have to harm someone for doing wrong. And it means choosing to bless that person rather than to curse them. Now, Sometimes people think that blessing them means allowing them to continue doing whatever terrible thing that they're doing and to not suffer any consequences for that. And that's not real blessing. That's not blessing at all. It's not blessing for the people that they hurt. And it's really not a blessing for them. Because what's a blessing for them is to be motivated to change. What's a blessing is to say, hey, let's get you some help. Let's get you in therapy. Let's get you to a support group. Let's do something for you rather than keep you stuck in this place. But what forgiving someone doesn't mean, it doesn't mean allowing someone to remain enabled and empowered to continue doing something evil. Now, that caveat aside, I don't want to remove the scandal of what Jesus teaches here. Okay, because no matter how you look at it, it's it's scandalous. No matter how you look at it, Jesus is asking us to be more forgiving than any of us are comfortable with. I mean, what he says on the cross should be evidence enough of that, right? 
But another perfect example of the fact that the forgiveness of God is scandalous is the, the parable of the lost son. I think that the parable of the lost son is probably one of the most frequently preached on passages in the whole Bible. But it's for good reason. And even if this morning you feel like, I've heard this a million times, I hope you hear it with fresh ears again this morning. I know that as I was preparing this message and I was reading through this, I got teary-eyed all over again. Um, So this is uh, from Luke 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And before we go any further, I want us to recognize how incredibly disrespectful the son's request is. He asks for his share of the estate, which essentially means he asks for his inheritance. And I'm sure most of us know, you don't normally receive an inheritance before your father has died, right? And then when the son does receive the inheritance prematurely, he then goes and he goes off to a a distant country. And remember, this is in the days, of course, between, before telef- telephones and, and uh, Skype. So if you're in a distant country, you're not communicating with your family anymore. So the son's actions communicate, I really don't care whether you're dead or alive, Dad. I'm not interested in having a relationship with you. All I care about is the money that you have to give me. That's how disrespectful and rude uh, this, these actions are, this request is. Continuing in verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This is how you know he's really hit rock bottom, because... You know, the Jews saw pigs as unclean animals. And he's like, man, I wish I could just eat what the pigs are eating. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and yet here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again, lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I want us to take in this morning what Jesus is saying about the grace of God here. You know, after saying to his father, essentially, I don't care whether you live or die, I just want my money. The son goes, he wastes all of it, in Vegas, or the 
ancient equivalent of Vegas. And, and it's not even until he hits rock bottom that out of necessity he goes, well, I, I better go back to my, my father. You know, it's not like he thought, oh man, I really did wrong. I should uh, go apologize to my father. No, he's, he's starving. That's the thing that brings him home, right? It would be completely understandable if the father said when the son showed up, you know what, you treated me like I was dead, and now I'm going to treat you like you're dead. It would be completely understandable if he said, you, you did what? You wasted all of that money? All of the inheritance? You can't stay here. You think I'm going to support you? I've done my fatherly duty and then some. Okay? You can make your own way in the world now. And some of us might even argue, that's good parenting, actually. Cut the cord. But that's not what happens. Right? The father sees him, and it says he's filled with compassion. He runs to him. He embraces him. And the, before the son can even finish apologizing, the father is saying, let's honor him as my son. Right? Let's throw a party for him. The father is filled with grace. And what Jesus is saying through the story is, this is what God is like. This is what your heavenly Father is like. He sees you and he runs towards you. See, there's something more important to him than keeping track of all your sins and making sure that you pay him what you owe. What's more important to him is his relationship with you. What's more important to him is you coming home and sitting at his table and feasting with him. That's what he really cares about. And my prayer is that our church can be a place where people realize that this is what God is like. Filled with grace, right? longing for relationship with us, willing to welcome us in if we just realize our need and come home. But even though this story reminds us that God is filled with this radical grace and forgiveness, it also reminds us that we often are not. Because here's what comes next, continuing in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. A lot of the time, we're like the older brother in the story. We're too upset by an offense to let it go. And even though God's willing to forgive, we're not. And, and we care more about punishing our brother than about welcoming him home. But if that's us, we need to hear the father in this story pleading with us. 
coming to the party, right? Don't stand outside pouting. Let it go. Refusing to forgive, that's not going to do you any good. It's, it's just going to keep you from the fun. One reason that churches sometimes stop being any fun is because too many of us are like the older brother. You know, over time, we build up offenses with each other, and, and then we just can't let them go. And we feel like we can't enter the party if that person is there. And when enough people in a a church adopt that attitude, then all the joy and all the life gets sucked out of it. If we as a church are going to be filled with grace, we have to choose to let things go. We have to choose to value our relationships more than making people pay for every offense. You know, to be filled with grace is to be a forgiving people. And closely related to this is a third sign of being filled with grace, which is we're able to work through disappointments. I was reading recently about a church that adopted the tagline, we will disappoint you. And I thought, now there's truth in advertising. You know, that might sound cynical, but there's really a lot of wisdom in it. At some point, every church is going to disappoint us. Because to state the obvious, churches are made up of people, and people are sinners. Uh, There's a saying, and I'll put it nicely, the nice way, uh, where there's life, there is manure. And churches are places where there's life. So there's going to be messes to work through. I've heard it said, there's no such thing as a perfect church, and if you ever find one, you better get out, because you're going to mess it up. And when we're not filled with grace, every time the church disappoints us, it's unbearable. We get angry, we get bitter, sometimes we leave, sometimes we stay, but the only reason is to get back at whoever offended us, to try and win. But when we're filled with grace, we love the church even in the midst of its mess, you know, even when it disappoints us. And grace gives us the strength to work through our disappointments so that we can get to the other side where there's deeper fellowship. Usually on the other side of a conflict is deeper, better fellowship, better community, and we just have to work through it. But if the instant disappointment strikes, we pull out, we run away, or we attack, well then we never get to experience the joy on the other side of the conflict. And grace enables us to get there. Finally, one more sign that we're filled with grace is that we're able to give and receive truth. We're able to give and receive truth. Last week, I used this phrase, fragile psyches. I said all of us have fragile psyches because we have this deep desire to see ourselves positively. And that means we want to see ourselves as basically moral, uh, reasonable, responsible, smart, justified in everything that we do and say. You know, we want to see ourselves as being on the right side of every political debate or every argument that we have with a friend. But the cold, hard truth is that we're all flawed, right? We're all sinners. Sometimes we aren't moral. Sometimes we aren't on the right side of the argument. Sometimes we aren't really being reasonable. 
And so to protect our fragile psyches, what we do is we build up these mental walls that keep us from acknowledging truths we don't like. And we, we have a little door in the wall that we open it up to let in the things that we do like, and we close it on anything that messes with the way we want to view ourselves and the world. So we, we uh, refuse to listen to opinions that don't align with our own. We dismiss information if it doesn't fit the narrative that we already have in our heads. But what grace does is it frees us to hear truth and to receive it. Grace enables that wall to come down because grace gives strength to our fragile psyches. Grace builds up our psyches because grace says, even when you've sinned, there's still a God who loves you, right? Grace says, even when you're immoral or unreasonable, God still sent his son to die for you. Grace says, even though you are partly responsible for nailing the Son of God to a cross, God still welcomes you to his table. Right? Grace says, even though you are sometimes on the wrong side of the argument, even though you sometimes have the facts wrong and you spread false information, sometimes you pretend to know about things that you don't have a clue about, God still has mercy for you. Grace says, even though you squandered your inheritance in Vegas, God still wants you to come home. And Grace says, you don't have to be perfect or anywhere close to it to be loved by your Creator. And when we know that God has that grace for us, we don't have to hide from the truth anymore. We don't have to spend all this energy on maintaining this wall that keeps the truth from coming in, right? We can be real. We can let the wall come down and receive the truth, however unflattering it might be. And once we're willing to acknowledge the truth, that's when we can actually grow. That's when we can actually change for the better. So, truth, grace, life. We've talked about truth and grace. What about that last word, life? The inspiration for that last word comes from John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, what is Jesus saying there? Is he, is he saying that I've come so that your heart might beat forever and you might keep breathing? No, right? What he's saying that is that he's come to bring a certain quality of life, a fullness of life. It, it's the kind of life that we're talking about when we say that person needs to get a life, right? We don't just mean that ne that person needs to start breathing, Right? We mean that person needs to start living the way that life is meant to be lived. That person needs to learn how to let go of things that matter and care about things that do. Jesus came to bring us the life that is truly life. And here's the thing. We can't experience life in the full, real life, until we're filled with both truth and grace. We need both of those things. And the thing is, sometimes we try to live in grace, but without truth. And sometimes we try to live in truth, but not in grace. Uh, life with all grace, but no truth, that's delusion. Right? When we, that's when we have an anything-goes attitude to life. Uh, all grace, all the time. You know, nothing really matters. I'm fine just the way I am. You're fine just the way you are. Don't worry about uh, any of the rules or anything like that. It's, it's like living life in the matrix. It's a delusion. This is not the way that life really is. And all of us know that living in some sort of fake world 
a simulation of our own mind, that isn't real fullness of life. It's fake. But on the other hand, life with all truth and no grace, that's miserable, right? When we open our eyes to, to see things the way that they really are, but we don't have any grace, we just end up depressed and anxious and overwhelmed, and we feel condemned because we realize how messed up and imperfect we are and everyone we know, and it just it doesn't lead us to anywhere good. But when we're filled with both grace and truth, we're able to see things as they actually are and actually be at peace, actually have joy. And that's a peace that means something because it's a peace that doesn't come from delusion. It's a peace that's grounded in truth. And, and the central truth that it rests on is this. I want to close with this quote from Tim Keller. I think he puts it beautifully. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. And I pray if any of us here are struggling with an image of you that is condemning and cruel, uh, that we would be able to see you as you truly are, Lord. That we would recognize what Jesus was saying when he, he talked about the Father in the story of the lost Son, Lord. I pray that we would look at that Father and recognize this is what you are truly like. Lord, I pray that our church would be a place that is filled both with truth and grace, Lord. That we would have eyes that are willing to be open to the reality of everything going on in the world and in ourselves. That we would not hide from the truth, but, but seek it out. And in the midst of that truth, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with grace, Lord. The grace that recognizes that we are loved by you. In spite of all our failures, in spite of our, our, our failure to recognize the truth sometimes, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that as our community is a place that embodies both truth and grace, that we would be uh, a picture of what real, real fullness of life looks like. And that many would be drawn, Lord, to participate in that fullness of life that comes through you. In Jesus' name, amen.